0: It's July 11th, 2020. I'm Rob Hochschild, and this is The Media Narrative. Season three, I'm talking to journalists around the country who work for local or nonprofit news organizations. In today's episode, New Orleans, I bring you a conversation I had recently with Jen Lorino and Ejaz Mason, founders of a nonprofit called LEED New Orleans. That's LEED, L-E-D-E, which, as you may know, refers to the opening sentence or paragraph of a news story. The central aim of Lead New Orleans is to build skills in young journalists and artists, ultimately manifesting in newsrooms and news coverage that more accurately reflects the authentic character, uh, the people of New Orleans. We'll hear about how layoffs at the New Orleans Times Picayune led to the formation of this nonprofit, how the organization has been soldiering through COVID 19. And we'll talk about the shaky future of the beloved Crescent City. Later in the program, I have some thoughts about contact tracing. And we'll hear a bit of a young band from New Orleans. Near the beginning of my conversation with Jen Lorino and Ejaz Mason, Lorino is talking about events unfolding in May 2019 when 160 people lost their jobs at the Picayune.
1: The Advocate, a competing paper here in Louisiana, bought out the Times-Picayune. And as a result, the Times-Picayune newsroom was dissolved, essentially. And that put me and dozens of other journalists out of work in New Orleans. And it was a tough period, for sure. And it prompted a lot of reflection as to, as I was watching journalists kind of leave New Orleans, literally dozens of journalists leave New Orleans, of what impact that would have on the city, as well as reflection on what had been missing all along in terms of our journalistic landscape. So kind of out of of that reflection, I thought about what is really needed. One of the things that stood out to me in working at the Times-Picayune, toward the end, I, I was kind of like, a sidekick editor <laughs> for for my my editor, Diana Samuels, who's now at the Seattle Times. She ran our, our breaking news and crime team. So whenever she was out, I, I would step in and take over on that. I also ran edits and was a reporter on that team. And a lot of the coverage that we did was crime coverage. And something that resonated from that experience is that whenever we'd go out in the community, a lot of the communities that we were going out to were poor, were majority black communities, and we were only going there when a crime happened. In addition, a lot of the engagement that our, our newsroom had with the community was still a lot of, was still very superficial And a last part of that was our newsroom didn't reflect the community mm-hmm. at the very base of. It. We were a majority white newsroom as is a lot of the, the journalism community in New Orleans.
0: When you say superficial, what do you mean by that and how does that create problems for journalists?
1: I think that there were solid efforts and a lot of newsrooms are putting in a lot of thought into community engagement, right? And the idea of, of that and and reaching out to your community and, and receiving feedback, but a lot of it kind of hinges on social media and making sure there's a presence there. And it's still a lot of outward dialogue mm-hmm. and it, we're, we're just not quite there as an industry in terms of really bringing in the community and, and making coverage community driven mm-hmm. is something I'm, I'm, particularly interested in i'm going to shout out city bureau in chicago a nonprofit civic news lab that has really taken this model um and and kind of built on it a lot of local newsrooms just aren't there yet and part of that has to do with capacity but part of it also has to do with who's in the newsroom and and what are the priorities there in terms of interacting with and bringing in the community Mm -hmm. is it just being on social media or is it really you know having town halls on a regular basis, you know, bringing in community organizing groups and organizers into your coverage and how you think about that. All those things make that community engagement piece come to life.
0: I want to ask, since you've been talking about the layoff and the changes there, did you pretty much know as it was coming that you were going to get laid off, you and your colleagues? And was there anything in that process that just really threw you for a loop?
1: It was a blind signing experience for me, personally. Mm-hmm. We, at the Times-Picayune, had always, I think in any newsroom, especially a newspaper newsroom in America, there's always an axe hanging over you, right? It's kind of a part of the industry right now. Yeah. Um, but we, in at the Times-Picayune, had been repeatedly told that it, it was not, this wasn't a we're selling the paper situation. They were committed to this paper, the family that owned it, um, advanced publications and they wanted to invest in it. So I can say on that day, it was jazz fest. It was in, in mm-hmm. may half of our, 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 whole entire entertainment team was out at jazz fest. I was out at an interview that had just gone really well and was riding high on that. When we were all got that email that every journalist dreads, which is, we need everybody to meet for a team meeting and everyone must be here. So already, you know, your heart is just like racing. We all gathered for the meeting in our newsroom. Our sales staff was there as well. Everybody was there. And they told us that John Georges and his wife Athel had purchased the paper. They are the owners of the Advocate, which is a Baton Rouge-based paper but that had, in recent years, moved into New Orleans. And that within two months, we would no longer be a newsroom. And that was the end. I mean, it was silence.
0: Quick pause here to mention the Pointer Institute in Florida, which has been tracking news closings and layoffs. This kind of shock and sadness has happened so often that according to a recent study from the Pew Research Center, U.S. newspapers have cut half of their newsroom employees since 2008. This is a disturbing trend and it is all meticulously reported on the Pointer website. But Pointer is also covering what some reporters are doing in the wake of layoffs. That's where I first read about Jen Lorino and Lead New Orleans.
1: I had been doing a lot of outreach work. Basically just it kind of started as personal growth. And looking to, you know, contact my, my colleagues of color and just say, like, what's going on here? You know, why is there so much inequity in media that's persisted over decades? I and mean, we just can't seem to, to get anywhere with this. What is it? What has been your experience? And it just started with conversations.
0: And when you say with inequity, people, can you just say a little bit more about what you mean by that?
1: At Lead Orleans, the way we think about equitable media is in on multiple fronts. It's thinking not just about the the makeup of the people who are doing the work, doing the media work. That's very important in making sure that all voices, especially our black, brown, Asian Pacific Islander in New Orleans here, voices are elevated, but also that we're thinking about the content side and who is the subject of our stories. Another part of that lens is thinking about how we're distributing the mm-hmm. content. Where are people from our underrepresented communities accessing information? All those are different layers of thinking about how we build equity into media that are important. Mm-hmm. But when you're you are in a traditional newsroom, it it becomes very much about who's in the newsroom mm-hmm. or are we covering communities, but never thought of, I guess, in a holistic way?
0: So that's the idea about addressing the inequity. But to take the step of actually starting an organization, that's a bigger deal. And I don't imagine it's been very easy you were about to get to the part where you uh, and E-Jazz met.
1: Yeah. I am not local in New Orleans. You know, no longer how long I live here, I'll never be from New Orleans. So that's that's an important thing. Yeah. You know, whenever you do anything in New Orleans, and because this is a community-driven project, I was looking for people to help me, you know, and guide, and guide this vision. And really, I, I knew I was looking for somebody with filmmaking chops, in a sense, and a lot of that digital expertise that – I felt was was kind of being lost because the advocate, when they purchased the Time Speaking Union, their focus was really on keeping a newspaper. Mm. So there wasn't like a digital focus necessarily. So I saw an opening there in addition to the youth-oriented goal. So actually, Ejaz, your name came up, your project with Ed Buckles, House of the Young came up a couple of times as I was talking to people in the community and just trying to understand like who would help me bring this vision to life, I guess. I remember we met as I think, it was like somewhere in downtown New Orleans.
2: <laughs> I remember uh, it being a very advantageous phone call because at the time, you know, I'm a, I'm a high school film teacher and my students have done such cool work, not just my students, but students all in my school have done such cool work in various forms. We've had a student every year for the past three years make it to the International Science Fair. We've won filmmaking awards. We've won writing awards. We've got pretty decent sports programs, all type of stuff. And none of the stories just seem to have any legs. And I was thinking to myself, if one of my kids got shot today, you know, the news cameras will be all over. You you, you have to be fighting news cameras off with a, with a bat. And so just in the process of me thinking about that, that's when Jen reached out to me and you know, first told me the idea about lead and, and what uh, it was going to be about. And it was like right up my alley because I've experienced a lot of that in my career, just having my creative vision, my voice stifled because it just doesn't fit what normal black media content looks like in New Orleans from a, from a journalism standpoint. Mm -hmm.
0: So Ejaz, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that feeling of the media, not really portraying anything, but the crime say, if that's about how you put it, what do you think they were missing and what are you hoping to start to shed light on in this collaboration with Jen and these students?
2: Well, with me, the mainstream media was just missing the authentic voice. I'm a big fan of what are called Second Lines in New Orleans. I I go to them all the time. I'm always documenting them. One thing I I seem to notice more and more when I go to Second Lines and it used to be, you know, the first line is the, the funeral procession of the band. And, you know, the second line is the people who just kind of follow behind and just join in, they dance, they sing, they join in on the beat and they're a part of the culture. But more recently, we started to see this third line start to pop up in New Orleans. Just people who are not from the city, who don't look like or have any identity, who have no cultural identity, don't share a cultural identity with anybody at the second lines. And yet, those are the stories that kept ending up on the major mainstream sites. I started seeing stories that were so completely out of touch with the culture of the city, calling Mardi Gras Indian regalia costumes and just the way they speak about New Orleans culture and specifically black culture, it, they were just missing the mark. And so what, what we try to do at Lead is we try to give some of that power back to the people who are actually from here, who are telling those stories, you know, empower them, teach them how to be good journalists, give them projects that, that push them to, you know, to think creatively and think like journalists and just give them that platform to get their stories out there and, as Jen will tell you, we haven't had a story about a shooting or a murder or poverty or anything like that come out of our fellows, because there's more to black people in the city of New Orleans than just being poor and killing each other. You know?
0: mm-hmm. Ejaz, I just wanted you to tell us where you are right now, because I understand you sound like a very busy person. You're on a, a shoot. Jen explained it's sort of a Katrina related documentary.
2: I, I won't say too much because I don't want to give away. the whole story, but right now I'm on set. I'm working with my business partner. It's, It's really his film. It's called Katrina Babies, but it's a documentary that features the young people who went through Hurricane Katrina, whose voices have never really been heard. We're talking about people who are anywhere from, you know, two to three years old up to 15, 16 years old. Just people like myself, you know, I was, I was 13 years old when Hurricane Katrina hit and my entire home, 13 feet of water in my home, my whole neighborhood washed away. The majority of my family members have been forced to move away from the city. I lost loved ones in the storm. I lost um, friends who I knew um, were displaced and I still haven't been able to connect with them to this day. And yet I haven't had a single therapy session. I went back to school. Nobody checked up on me and asked me, was I okay? It was just like, okay, it's back to normal. When in actuality, for, Thousands and thousands of young, young people uh, who lived during the storm, there was no counseling or help to get through that trauma. And so this documentary, without giving too much of it away, is going to focus on that and telling those people's stories.
0: In this next segment, Ejaz Mason and Jen Lorino talk about how the concept for LEAD New Orleans really started to take hold.
1: How many of us have been in the newsroom with the older guy in the corner that absolutely doesn't want to talk to anybody and is surrounded by stacks of papers and is just like rough? (laughs) like You know, when you finally break through with him because he kind of respects you, then you can learn something from him. That is detrimental for all young journalists, I think, but especially for young journalists of color young journalists who are coming at this and maybe have nobody in their family who even knows what you know journalists do. So the experience of teaching is, it's, it's a learning process, obviously for you, but at the basic level, it's just listening to what they want to know, what, what they need help with and being there, offering that help.
0: So I'd love to break that down a little more. I I do want to interject real quick. When you were talking about that person in the newsroom, I had somebody like that at a newspaper I worked at outside of Philly. And the only way I could ever get him to talk to me about things like that is by going into the cigarette break room. This was mid 80s. So like you would. (laughs) <laughs> exactly, you sit in a cloud of smoke and then maybe if you make that commitment, then you can get some information. So how does the instruction or training or editing work? And it seems like you two might be working nicely complementary. in that Ejaz, I presume, is working with students on video production and concepts and things like that and storyboarding. And you're working with students on, on writing and reporting and journalism, or maybe there's more overlap. I know Ejaz can write. I saw his essay from this week on Medium but if you could say a little bit about what that's like what work are the students doing and how do you sort of coach them along
1: so this is an interesting question to answer amid a pandemic (laughs) because we had a lot of plans leading up to the spring of what we were going to do um, and how this would run and they were all blown up you know with 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 the pandemic and with coronavirus, is this uh, your what,
0: first group or uh, first yeah, so group this of fellows?
1: Our first fellowship program. So this was our first round of young people who we were working with. What we've done is taken our program virtual, as so many people have done. Incidentally, a lot of our learning and kind of base what we call foundation sessions were done over Google Classroom, and that was always going to be the case. So back in March, when we were trying to figure out how we were going to pivot. We basically got everybody started on Google Classroom and learning the basics of journalism. What we do is kind of like modules where people learn the basics of journalism on a video course where they're doing kind of back and forth and, and really getting familiar with the concept. And then for this spring, what we did is, is basically, you know, had our students, our fellows pitch projects um, about coronavirus and how they were seeing an impact to their communities. Amazing. A lot of them are at home. So they were looking at their families and how their families were impacted. They were doing interviews over Zoom. And then we instituted we- weekly meetings on Zoom where we were interacting and talking about some of the issues we were facing, what they were confused about, and even talking about media literacy things mm. like how how do we know this coronavirus information is true or not? Mm. You know, what I'm seeing on social media is, is not lining up with what I'm seeing in, in the news
2: and how do I write all those things? So at the, the earliest outset of this project, we were going to do a lot of multimedia things with students, like really hand on, hands-on work with our fellows, bringing them on set. We actually got one experience with that in a project that we were working on called Lead Voices, where we just interview local people of color who are doing you know really cool things in the community, art dance photography so on and so forth and it turned out great it was a great experience for that young man he got to ask some of his own questions that he had for interview subjects and that was really really cool then all of a sudden when, when COVID-19 started we had to totally uh, revamp the way we thought about this project and what and how we were going to you know make it beneficial for students while understanding that we that we're limited with how interactive it can be and it's definitely been a challenge for me you know i'm I, I, i'm i'm not a good online teacher I, i'm a face to face get your hands dirty let's go do it you know type type of guy it's just it's who i am so shout out to jen for, for carrying the heavy load she's great with logistics and emailing people and, and and scheduling and stuff like that and so you know like she said we, we've sort of had to really revamped the way we think about projects. And so students have sort of been uh, shooting their own things and editing their own things. And we've been sort of just giving uh, feedback, criticism as to what they can do to make it better. And I think the weekly meetings um, have sort of really helped us to, you know, sort of galvanize together. And, you know, even though we've, we've never really met in person as a whole group, there's still that camaraderie factor. And yeah. So kids, like not kids, but the fellows, they want to be successful, you know.
1: I think that's one of the craziest parts is we've managed to do work without having an in-person meeting at all. Crazy. <laughs> you know, I've I met some of these, some of our fellows in person individually, but we've never been together.
0: Do you feel there's been any benefits to them to have to be forced into this arrangement right now? I know it's been a drag probably overall, but the fact that you had to establish this sort of do work, get feedback, do work, get feedback, that that could be an interesting way to learn because it forces them to do perhaps a little more work on their own than they might have otherwise. Have you seen that at all? Either one of you guys?
1: Yeah. I mean, they've been thrown into it. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it is very, it's very similar to what an internship experience would be like, you know, um, they basically told like, here's our basic idea of what we want to do you come at us with ideas. And we have seen the frustration of like, you know, when you cannot show somebody how to edit something in person or I'm sending them back stories and it's got red, all <laughs> over, you yeah. know, and they're like, Oh gosh, you know, but I, a, a big part of the communication and, and something that I think we should be doing even for, for, ex- you know, experienced emerging journalists, if that is a word,
0: <laughs>
1: just <laughs> offering, you know, is clarifying that that is part of the process, you know. Don't don't discount this part of the process, which is being torn down almost and built back up. But you have it in you, you know, to to do the work. But it is work, you know. And that and that's been really crystallized, I think, over this this experience where we're virtual.
0: You know I teach writing at Berkeley College of Music. I don't know if if, if I mentioned that or not. So I I had a, I've had very similar experiences to what you just described everything about although I met all my students for a few weeks before. So your timing was really unfortunate. But that's probably tested you and helped you too in ways you probably haven't even realized yet. So, especially if it's going well, a uh, couple more questions, and then I'll let you go, Jen. I read a few of your stories before we got together today. One of them you wrote for Biz New Orleans, and that was about the French Quarter renovation. I guess would be the term reconstruction. I saw some of that when I was there last year, January. It was it was. Nuts. I don't usually spend much time on a bourbon street anyway, but that made me get out of there really quickly. But anyway, so that article touched on infrastructure and public safety and a few other issues. I know you covered New Orleans for a long time, or the business in New Orleans, as well as other stuff. What's your outlook? for the future of New Orleans right now. I gotta think everyone's on edge a little bit as we move into another hurricane season too, and climate change is rearing its head. But when you look at the overall future of New Orleans for business, for music, for community, however you would wanna look at it, how is it looking to you sort of based on all that work you did covering the business side of things and, and what you sort of see now?
1: New Orleans has never had an easy. We have a tough future we are right on the front lines of climate change, you know, and that that is something that's easily overlooked amidst a lot of the difficulties that is living in New Orleans. So, you know, you had mentioned a lot of people come into our city and they're enamored with it and they fall in love with it. I was one of those people, a lot of them are white, you know, and they're like, wow, we can come into the city and love it without ever knowing the, the pain that is living in New Orleans, that a lot of people Especially people of color in New Orleans that grew up there, they, they see that. So when we talk about the future of New Orleans, we have climate change, we have intense inequity. That's all kind of crystallized in the city. And, you know, for me, I I think the only way forward is if we include more voices in that conversation and we we really plug in and listen to the communities that haven't been listened to. You know, that is the only way that New Orleans will Survive and thrive. It's not bringing in more companies. It's really understanding and and letting the community drive what's important for the city. And I'm seeing that in our young people a lot. For a lot of them, before coronavirus, like climate change was something I talked about in multiple interviews for Lead New Orleans mm-hmm. and what that means when we're flooding on rainstorm days. Now that's a regular thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's our you know, marginalized communities that are hurt most by that. So that's my take. I, I don't know, Ejaz, if you want to want to jump in there in terms of the future of New Orleans.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. Funny enough, I, I, yesterday I was on set. I did an interview with the pretty, pretty well-known political commentator, James Carville. Um, oh, yeah. And he preaches about these three things, these three specific things all the time. He says if you want to know anything about louisiana even in new orleans specifically it's all about race water oil and you can pretty much any story you have about new orleans or louisiana you can cover those three things so what jen is talking about the inequity in the community i mean how like the majority of the people who live like near the river uh all through louisiana are usually people of color poor people of color who depend on the river for various forms of commerce. And then the oil industry is in extreme decline. And it's not just oil. A lot of our businesses that were booming in the state of Louisiana for, you know, decades are now starting to slow down a little bit. And the world is, you know, the world is starting to fight back and we're seeing it firsthand every single day. The other day it flooded in, in the city just a random rainfall. Our pumps don't work. Uh, they never work. I'm not sure if they've ever worked. And so yeah, I think that, you know, with the rapid climate change that we're all going through, I think that people in New Orleans especially are going to be hit really, really hard. If another Katrina, go off a bit, knock on wood. I got some wood right here. If another Katrina was to happen, that, that just might be the end. Like it, it, it just realistically, especially if it was to hit right now, when we have so much economic uncertainty in the city of New Orleans due to COVID-19, if, if people were displaced now, like, where can you go? What money do you have to relocate? What resources can the government give you that aren't already being allocated to other things? So, I'm just praying for the best. But I think I, I agree with Jen said it, it's going to be tough. Um, it's, we have a tough road ahead.
1: In thinking about local media, especially after having just gone through a layoff, you know, from a local media publication last year, I don't I don't see any higher cause than then understanding and helping the community figure out that that pathway forward and how can the community help itself and, and each other. And I, I think we've kind of gotten away from that in journalism because there's a desire to be independent, to cover, you know, as you have fewer journalists, you're covering the really big issues, you're covering politics and, and city hall, but that community level stuff is, is where where we're seeing that that inequity surface and where we're also seeing people trying to change it you know mm-hmm. so it, it, we need a little bit more attention to that
0: well it's it, it is great that you're doing this work it's clear that it needs to be done i think a lot of cities could use this sort of attention and boost in terms of equity in in newsrooms so kudos and thanks to you both and thanks to you for the time today, I really appreciate it. Jen Larino and Ejaz Mason, co-founders of LEAD New Orleans. Thanks.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you,
2: Rob. Thanks so much for having us.
0: Learn more at leadneworleans.org, L-E-D-E, neworleans.org. Lots of great stories and videos made by the young journalists and producers there. You'll hear some music from New Orleans, their recommendation, in just a moment. But right now, a few words on contact tracing in the time of covid Tracers are the good people who are hired to get on the phone and communicate with infected people and everyone who's been around one. There's a wide range of success or lack thereof nationally. There's also mobile apps for contact tracing out there also with very mixed results Contact tracing has worked well in the past. It was key to shutting down syphilis in the 30s and Ebola in 2014. And even though the engine behind contact tracing is the question, who exactly have you been hanging with? Often followed by the answer, none of your business. It is seen by many experts as the most important tool for defeating this virus until a vaccine is improved. I live in one of the few U.S. states, Massachusetts, that has done a bang-up job on contact tracing. There's about nine or ten of them that are close to 100% on contact tracing. I'll go ahead and swell with pride and tell you that Boston, despite a rough start dealing with this virus, is now the national capital, if you will, of contact tracing, mostly thanks to an organization based here called Partners in Health. Experts say you need about five contact tracers for each new case. Massachusetts has started laying off contact tracers. We actually have more than we need. But down in Florida, where they had 11,000 new cases in one day this week, testandtrace.com says Florida needs to hire 48,000 tracers to start catching up. According to the same website, California and Texas need to hire 40,000 each. Why then, when you consider that we need to hire tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of contact tracers nationally, Can't those laid-off contact tracers and wannabes like me grab ourselves and help in super-spreader states like Florida? Well, because in order to get people to A, answer the phone, and B, actually speak to a stranger about their contacts and their medical condition, you need callers who are part of that community, who live and know the community, who speak the language that is spoken there, and will therefore earn the trust of people on the other end of these calls. You also have to be a good listener, understand the social complexities of this moment, and have a heavy dose of emotional intelligence. This is what I've learned anyway from watching some webinars, reading a bunch of news stories. What I still can't seem to find is a really great source for the needs nationally in particular states where people might want to find and apply for contact tracing jobs in those particular states. There's nothing really helpful on the CDC website about this, but it's got to be out there. Let me know if you have any suggestions. I'm going to keep looking and we'll share what I learned either on the podcast or the website. But if you're unemployed in this country right now or just looking to help, find out if your state needs contact tracers and get a gig. Uncle Sam needs you for this one. We'll take it out now with some music from New Orleans. E-Jazz Mason and Jen Lorena provided several great music recommendations from their music city. See the show notes. One of them was Tank and the Bangas. We'll hear a little bit of their song quick from the performance on the NPR music tiny desk concert, Tank and the Bangas.
1: And then I took him by the and
2: Ricky and his vodka. The Next thing that I know, man, he was reaching for his wallet I've been driving real fast with a tank full of gas stolen cash. On the cash. It plays my right song fast, and my past my crash play smart. Take it slow. shipping on that it scissor, I was gleaming in a ride. Girl, my car's standing swerving. Back that bass mix with them sirens, girl. I'm, I see him looking. I'm
0: Subscribe and sign up for the newsletter at themedianarrative.com. Until next time, I'm Rob. Girl,
2: no, I gotta make a workout decision. My hand moved to that note, but I get a flashback of a recap of the night before. Life, life, life. Hi, don't you wanna ride? Don't you wanna fly?